this week on KPBS Roundtable, next year's power forecast for gas and electric customers. The delivery cost for electricity is trending down. Delivery means the transmission and distribution system. Plus, a KPBS investigation reveals California credit unions are collecting hundreds of millions of dollars in overdraft fees. It surprised a lot of people just how much money it was. A quarter billion dollars last year alone, state chartered credit unions brought in. And we'll hear about a ballot initiative that would make it easier to prosecute drug dealers for homicides after fatal overdoses. Don't go anywhere. Roundtable is coming up next. Welcome to KPBS Roundtable. I'm Matt Hoffman. Fingers crossed, the outlook for SDG&E bills in the new year appears positive. That headline comes from the Union Tribune's Rob Nicoleski. He's been reporting on San Diego gas and electrics forecasting for next year. And part of that, SDG&E officials were at a San Diego City Council meeting earlier this week that did get tense at times. Joining us to dive into the power outlook is the Union Tribune's energy reporter, Rob Nicoleski. Rob, welcome back to Roundtable. Good to be back, Matt. Thank you. Great to have you here. So let's just jump right into this. You know, every single resident of San Diego, they have an SDG&E bill, whether it's gas, electric, or both. Why do utility officials say it looks like rates won't be going up next year? Well, when you take a look at your bill, there's a breakdown. There's electricity delivery costs and electricity generation costs. And that's what SDG&E was talking about this week, that the delivery costs for electricity is trending down. Delivery means the transmission and distribution system, you know, from transmission lines to substations and bringing that electricity to each individual resident in, uh, in, in San Diego or, or each individual account. And the, the numbers are trending down for this coming year, the new year, and that will translate, SDG&E says, to about a $5 reduction in bills for a typical SDG&E residential customer in January compared to their December bill. Now, some people with gas appliances, they might be thinking about last winter when they reached like record high levels. Why does SDG&E say it's likely that those gas prices won't be you know, skyrocketing this year? Well, three big reasons. Number one, last year there was a ruptured gas line that was, that was sending natural gas from West Texas into Southern California that was supplying natural gas to SDG&E customers and other customers in Southern California. That gas line was ruptured last year. Then around February or March, early last year, that gas line got repaired. So right now, as we speak, there's no major gas line problems as far as sending gas supplies into Southern California. Another reason why the outlook is looking better is because the weather is not as cold so far this winter as it was at the same time last year. And when you've got a really cold winter, that sends up gas demand because people are cranking up their gas heaters. And then the third reason why is because we have more storage this year in Southern California. There's about 28% more natural gas in storage. So you've got more supply and uh, that's helping make things look a little bit better. 
And we know that this Outlook report came to the San Diego City Council earlier this week, but some council members, they were not happy with SDG&E. Many were pointing to a recent state auditor report, which found that SDG&E charges the highest rates in the nation for power. We're going to start with this clip. Here's what San Diego Council Member Marnie Von Wilpert had to say. The gas and electric rates that SDG charges are too high. They are the highest in the nation. Uh, people cannot afford them here in San Diego. And SDG&E is a for-profit company. You do have to make a profit. I understand that. At the same time, you don't have to gouge our customers. Then moments after that statement, here's a rebuttal or some type of pushback. It was from SDG&E's Senior Vice President Scott Kreider, and he has this little exchange with Von Wilpert. I, I know sometimes I, I, I get an eye roll every time I say this, but in the city of San Diego, SDG&E does not have the highest prices in the country. Wait. Because I don't, I don't if, if, if an accurate statement would be San Diego Gas and Electric and San Diego Community Power have the highest electricity prices in the country. We do not set the prices for the commodity. We only set the prices for the delivery. Our rates are high. Our delivery rates are high. I'm not, I'm not discounting that. But, our, but the, the, the full rate that a customer sees in their bill, about 60% comes from us. 40% does not come from us. All right, Rob, now let's break that down. I think when most people get a bill, they think it all comes from SDG&E. But why are rates so high for customers? Matt, California utilities make their money and their profits on infrastructure projects, such as wildfire mitigation efforts, maintaining natural gas plants, building battery storage facilities, et cetera. And a big driver in those rates that go into an SDG&E bill is that SDG&E has spent since 2007 about $5 billion on wildfire mitigation efforts. And all those projects we're talking about, wildfire mitigation, maintaining plants, that sort of stuff, all that goes into the rates that customers pay. Now, the reason why SDG&E says that their rates are higher than the other investor-owned utilities in California, which is Southern California, Edison and PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, is because their service territory is smaller than those other two service territories. And because that service territory is smaller, there's a smaller base or smaller rate base to, to derive their, their costs from, and therefore their costs are a little bit higher. There's also more industrial customers that use a lot of energy, use a lot of electricity in PG&E and Southern California, Edison's territory than there are in Southern, in the San Diego gas and electric territory. That's another reason for that. And in addition to that, a lot of SDG&E uh, service territory power lines are underground, much higher percentage underground, which is more expensive than it is in other parts of the country. For example, about 60% of SDG&E's power lines are underground and about 40% are Across the nation. So you add up all those things together, and SDG&E says those are some of the reasons why their rates are so high, especially compared to the other California utilities, which are also high, by the way. And we also heard in that clip that San Diego Community Power, they were mentioned there, and they're one of mm-hmm. two community choice energy programs. How do they factor into this? Because it sounds like SDG&E is saying, like, it's, it's not just us. Yeah, what they're saying is it's, I think what Scott Kreider was pointing out was that the rates are broken up between the electricity rates and also 
the transmission and distribution costs. The way that a community choice energy program like San Diego Community Power and the Clean Energy Alliance, the way they are set up is they are able to set their rates for their customers. But everything else in the power system, the utility power system, such as transmission and distribution costs, poles and wires, repairing down poles and wires, all those other costs besides the power purchases that the rates go into that San Diego Community Power pays for, all those other costs are paid by the incumbent utility. In this case, it would be San Diego Gas and Electric. So technically within the city of San Diego, when you're talking about the overall rates, the rates are charged by San Diego Community Power for most of their customers in the city of San Diego. The rest of those charges are attributed to San Diego Gas and Electric. So it's a bit of a fine distinction, but he technically is correct. And we know that you've reported that San Diego Gas and Electric made like $900 million in 2022, and that's just profit we're talking about. But at that city council meeting earlier this week, you know, Von Wilpert also brought up this idea that SDG&E for years has been making more money than their authorized return. That sounds very technical, Rob. Uh, what exactly yes, does yes. that mean? Well, the California Public Utilities Commission sets an authorized rate of return not just for SDG&E, but for all the utilities that they oversee. And that means for local distribution charges, that there's a specific rate that the utilities can earn up to. For example, for SDG&E, it's right around that authorized rate of return is a little bit under 8% for various projects like we were talking about, wildfire mitigation and all these other infrastructure projects that they make. Now, there is also within that there is a an incentive that the utilities commission and other utilities commissions across the country make which is okay your authorized rate is let's say eight percent that means that if you go through all the you, you jump through all the hoops you're able to build the infrastructure at the at the amount of money that is expected to make that infrastructure investment, you can make 8%. Now there's an incentive there that if the utility is able to efficiently construct and implement those programs at a slightly better rate, then they can pocket that difference. So in other words, if let's say a project costs $500 million or, or was budgeted to cost $500 million and SDG&E is able to complete that project at $480 million. The CPUC allows them to make that $20 million difference or able to pocket that difference. That's what they're talking about. And as we close out this segment, Rob, there was an effort this week to replace SDG&E with a public utility. That effort was launched, I should say. Power San Diego, they're trying to collect 80,000 signatures to basically get a measure on the 2024 ballot. And proponents reportedly say that the current power system is broken and putting the power, for lack of a better word, in the hands of the public would cut electric costs by 20 percent. Okay, not to take another sharp turn here, but could that actually happen, Rob? And has SDG&E commented on that effort? It could theoretically happen if they're able to get those 80,000 signatures by May. It could go on to the ballot. There are some challenges, though. There's, first of all, the cost. It's estimated 
uh, that the people from Power San Diego have estimated that it would cost about $3.5 billion to take over, in, in essence, take over all, all of the uh, infrastructure within the city of San Diego. And that should be pointed out that this proposal to try to get onto the ballot applies only to the city of San Diego. It's not the rest, not all of sdg and service territories just for the city of san diego so the people who would sign this petition who are eligible to sign this petition they have to be registered in registered voters in the city of san diego it could theoretically happen um the people at power san diego say since we would not be a for-profit corporation then they estimate they could maybe save 20 percent. but there are some challenges not just the cost but also the labor union that represents the electrical workers at STG&E. They've come out against it. They're concerned that a carve-out and a brand-new community energy program would threaten their jobs. And also, there's been some other cities across the country that have tried to, quote, municipalize the electrical service for their respective for-profit utilities, and they haven't been able to get very far. So there are some challenges there, but theoretically, it could happen. So if people are out at grocery stores or something, there might be signature gatherers asking about this specific initiative. I've been speaking with the Union Tribune's energy reporter, Rob Nikoleski. And Rob, thanks for being here. Thank you, Matt. Next on Roundtable, how one Southern California father is leading an effort to bring tougher penalties for drug dealers involved in overdose deaths. The push comes after failing to get legislation passed in Sacramento. The main pushback was hesitation that this is a slippery slope that would worsen mass incarceration without actually leading to a solution. Roundtable is back in less than two minutes. Welcome to KPBS Roundtable. I'm Matt Hoffman. Credit unions, they've long been seen as an alternative to big banks. Unlike banks, they have local ties to the communities that they serve. They're nonprofit businesses, but that image might be changing. Credit unions chartered in California made a quarter of a billion dollars last year, and that's just through overdraft fees. A recent KPBS investigation found that some local credit unions rely heavily on those overdraft fees from customers. Here's what credit union member Tony Rumfeld had to say. Do you think of them as being a local, a local service to the community? You know, and they're not supposed to be in this for making the big buck. They're supposed to just be making ends meet like the rest of us. Here to tell us more, we're joined by KPBS's investigative reporter, Scott Rod. And Scott, great to have you here back. Thanks for having me on. So we know that you've been digging into this, but before we get into some of these overdraft fees, let's talk about what a credit union is and isn't, because I think some people have this image in their mind of maybe what it is, like as we just heard from the guy before, uh, versus what they are compared to banks. So when you compare the two, how are they different? 
So they definitely are similar in a lot of ways. You know, they have a lot of the same products. They, you know, you can do checkings and savings with them. You can get loans from them. But there are some key differences. Uh, so a big one is that credit unions are not for profit. Uh, that means that any profit that they bring in, it's supposed to go back to the members in some way. So it's supposed to uh, go towards better loan options, go towards better returns on savings, stuff like that. They also are member-owned, technically. So by that, members have some sort of common trait. So they may be employed uh, by the same type of employer, like they may be in the military, they may be uh, teachers, or they may be in the same geographic region. Those distinctions have kind of loosened in recent years. A lot of times, if you're a family member of someone who qualifies, you can also join. So the credit union member ranks have kind of grown in recent years. But those are some of the key differences between banks and credit unions. And they seem to be like regional too. Like I'm thinking like ones in Sacramento are different than ones here in San Diego. Um, But it also sounds like that there's different rules that govern banks and credit unions, even though like if you walk into one, they look virtually the same. How are they governed differently? Yeah, it really comes down to that not-for-profit status that credit unions have. So they have to pay less in taxes. They have different regulatory requirements. So if you ask experts, they'll say the regulations and requirements for credit unions and disclosures that they have to make uh, to the public are a bit looser than big banks. And especially in the last 10 plus years after the Great Recession, you know, banks, especially big banks, have seen much tighter regulations in terms of what they have to report to the government and what they have to disclose publicly. But some of that disclosing publicly is changing, right? We have like a new law here in California. Uh, What is it forcing these credit unions to do? That's exactly right. So big banks for a number of years have had to disclose how much money they bring in in overdraft fees. And quickly, when we say overdraft fees, that essentially means when you go to a store, you go to make a purchase with a debit card, and either you are able to make the purchase, but you have then a negative balance, or you may make a purchase or attempt to, and your card gets declined because you don't have enough money in your account. Uh, For the sake of simplicity, I'm going to refer both of those as overdrafts here. And essentially, banks and credit unions issue fees when that happens. And for years, again, big banks have had to disclose how much they brought in. They brought in, especially before the pandemic, you know, upwards of $10 billion a year in overdraft revenue. But credit unions have escaped this scrutiny. They haven't had to disclose how much they're bringing in, even though they also have these fees. And, you know, it may be a $20, $30 fee typically, sometimes even a little more, but um, those fees can definitely add up. But now here in California, after this law passed last year, credit unions have to disclose how much revenue they bring in in overdraft fees. And it surprised a lot of people just how much money it was. A quarter billion dollars last year alone, state chartered credit unions brought in. And so, again, some credit unions are chartered at the federal government, think like Navy Fed, Mission Fed. But the ones chartered here in California brought in over $250 million last year in overdraft fees. Just in overdraft fees. That's kind of amazing. And we know that you looked at a number of local credit unions, too, who sort of like relied on this income. Who are we talking about? Is it some of like the big names that people might recognize? Yeah, I think a lot of listeners would recognize some of those names. San Diego County Credit Union is one of them. They brought in $18 million in overdraft fees last year. And it's not too surprising on the one hand because they are one of the larger credit unions in the state, but that was the second most among all state chartered credit unions in terms of overdraft revenue. 
the customers, the members that I spoke to at San Diego County Credit Union, they were surprised by that figure. They were surprised just how much the credit union was bringing in because, again, they didn't think of their credit union as a big bank. In fact, the motto, the tagline for San Diego County Credit Union for a number of years has been, it's not big banking, it's better, right? <laughs> so they've drawn this distinction between them and the big banks. So a lot of members were surprised to hear that. There were also some smaller credit unions that maybe brought in less overdraft revenue, such as Front Wave Credit Union based in Oceanside. They brought in $8 million last year, but it made up a significant portion of their revenue, something that it, it was clear that they really relied on this as a key revenue stream. In fact, it made up 140% of their net income, which essentially means without overdraft fees, they easily could have lost money last year. And is that a problem for credit unions if they're relying so much on this money to to sort of, you know, make it all work. The banking and financial watchdogs I talked to for this story, they said if credit unions or banks rely too heavily on any source of revenue, that is a concern. But this revenue stream in particular caused them concern because, again, it's dependent on people not having enough money in their checking account. And it's a fee. So if that's where a sizable portion of revenue is coming from, these experts I talked to, they questioned whether or not this is something that the credit unions should really be turning to, to generate revenue like that. And when we talk about overdraft fees, is it like a couple bucks? Is it like $25? Do you have any idea of the scope or the size of them? It ranges. So it can be 10 bucks, 20 bucks, you know, up to over $30. So it definitely ranges depending on the credit union or the bank. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of these for San Diego County Credit Union, like hundreds of thousands of these like overdraft fees that they've doled out. Exactly. So it may seem like a small dollar amount for each individual one, but they really do add up. And again, it's each time someone goes to make a purchase and they overdraft their account. So I think San Diego County Credit Union, you may be charged up to maybe four times a day. So again, you know, that may be over $100 in fees if you don't realize, oh, wait, I don't have enough money in my checking account. I didn't transfer over enough money for my savings. So that money really does add up. And you also write that big banks, that they've made some reforms when it comes to overdraft fees, but credit unions, they've avoided that same level of scrutiny. I mean, what exactly are we talking about? They're like banks eliminating these overdraft fees and the credit unions not? There have been some big banks that have eliminated overdraft fees. There have been others who have uh, softened their fees, you know, sometimes creating kind of a repayment grace period. Some have reduced the amount uh, that they charge in fees. And a lot of that came from, you know, these disclosures that the big banks had to make and the public and politicians seeing just how much money was they were bringing in. And the scrutiny caused a bit of a fallout for some of these big banks. It was really bad press for them, and they got a lot of pressure from the public and from uh, even Capitol Hill. But again, credit unions, until this year in California, haven't had to disclose this information. So some of the folks I talked to wondered if there might be similar changes that may happen in the credit union space now that this information is starting to become public. You know, again, just how much money these credit unions are bringing in. Right. And becoming public, thanks in part to your reporting. Um, and also in your reporting, uh, we know that credit unions have been collecting these overdraft fees. But you also say that significant pay increases for many executives at these nonprofit institutions, these credit unions have been happening. What kind of raises are we talking about here? So the most significant one was at San Diego County Credit Union. We found that uh, about a decade ago, the CEO 
of San Diego County Credit Union was making just over a million and a half dollars in total compensation. And fast forward 10 years, she was making close to $12 million. So a pretty substantial increase. Again, when I talked to members and shared that information, they were surprised to see just how much money the executive, the chief, you know, the chief executive was making at San Diego County Credit Union. And you know, they wondered, again, excess revenue profit, so to speak, um, at, at credit unions it's supposed to be returned to the members through different forms of benefits. Um, so they wondered, you know, is this where the excess revenue, extra revenue is going at the end of the year? Should that be something that's returned more to members or the community at large? There were some others as well where we saw the uh, their compensation had increased, you know, double, maybe triple in recent years. But San Diego County Credit Unions was the one that stood out the most. And we know during this process, you reached out to a number of these different credit unions to try to get some comment on what you found. And you only got an interview with one of them, Front Wave uh, and their CEO, Bill Bernie. Uh, What did he have to tell you about these fees and maybe the reasons why they have them? So we reached out to over half a dozen credit unions and Front Wave, Bill Bernie, the CEO there, he was the only one who agreed to an interview. And he he acknowledged, yes, this is an important source of revenue for us. This, you know, we do bring in $8 million a year. But he said, this is actually a service for our members. You know, some of our members may be lower income and they may not have enough money at the end of the month. And so some of them use it as a kind of bridge to pay for essentials like groceries and gas um, before their next paycheck. And this overdraft program, you know, gets them across the line, so to speak, to make sure that they can get what they need. Um, And he emphasized, you know, we don't call it a fee, we call it a service. So that was something that he really hammered home. I will say, though, that the consumer advocates and financial watchdogs I spoke to weren't buying this argument. They said, you know, these fees can be exploitative for people who are lower income, who live paycheck to paycheck. That's who faces these fees most. It's not going to be someone making, you know, $100,000, $200,000 a year. It's going to be the people who are just barely scraping by. And that's, you know, $20, $30 for a family that is just making ends meet. That can be a significant hit for them, especially if those fees add up. Oh, totally. I mean, we're talking in the millions and millions of dollars and statewide, $250 million. And as we wrap up here, you know, post-publishing the story, what's been the response either from members of the public or even maybe people in the credit union business? So members of credit unions have reached out to me after this story and expressed surprise that credit unions brought in this much money. Some have shared their personal experience with overdrafts. And, you know, some of them have said they felt like the overdraft policies were not totally clear. They felt like they were hit with multiple overdrafts sometimes. And it just felt like it was something that they were being squeezed by their credit unions for a little extra money. And that it wasn't really in line with, again, that community-friendly neighbor ethos that a lot of credit unions have. So that's by and large the response we got was surprise at this, but then also folks saying, yeah, hey, me too. I've gotten these fees and they're no fun. And one more before we go, a little bit of a, a reporter's notebook question here. How did you find out about this story? What was the process of you like to look at this data and actually get this done? So this data was required under a state law that was passed last year. The key with stuff like this is there are so many bills proposed at the state level in California. 
the ones that are signed, it's also a very large number. A lot of times what happens is people say, oh, great, we passed this law, it requires this disclosure, these data disclosure requirements, but then it's kind of forgotten about. And this was sort of one of those where this was passed, people cheered it, and then the data was disclosed this year and not really much came of it. And I realized, oh, wait, there's this trove of information that's sitting there that's super interesting, really fascinating. And that happens a lot with state laws that this stuff's kind of sitting out there, but people aren't always following up on it or remembering, oh, wait, last year they passed this thing and there's this really interesting information out there now. Digging into the financial records, that was a little more complicated. You got to know where to look. It's not rocket science, but it's not necessarily something that credit unions or other nonprofits are, you know, sharing openly and yelling it from the mountaintops that you can look, dig into their financials. So that took a little more legwork. Very cool. Well, it was a great story. Scott Rod is an investigative reporter with KPBS News. And Scott, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. Next on Roundtable, how one Southern California father is leading an effort to bring tougher penalties for drug dealers involved in overdose deaths. The push comes after failing to get legislation passed in Sacramento. The main pushback was hesitation that this is a slippery slope that would worsen mass incarceration without actually leading to a solution. Roundtable is back in less than two minutes. Welcome back to KPBS Roundtable. I'm Matt Hoffman. Overdoses are the leading cause of death for Americans 18 to 45 years old. Increasing numbers of these fatal overdoses are from opioids. And after state lawmakers failed to take up harsher penalties for dealers, one Southern California father is leading an effort to bring an initiative to California voters. It would make it easier to prosecute overdose deaths as homicides. KPBS's racial justice and social equity reporter Katie Heisen is here with more. Katie, welcome to Roundtable. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So the main driver of this push for a statewide initiative meant to toughen rules for overdose deaths is Matthew Capilouto. He's from Temecula, so Southern California, and he has a really personal connection to this issue. Can you sort of tell us about him a little bit and what led him to this point? So like a lot of people who are pushing for these harsher penalties, he's a grieving parent. He lost his 20-year-old daughter, Alexandra, to an overdose death. He says she bought what she thought was Percocet from a dealer on Snapchat, but it contained fentanyl. She took half a pill before she went to bed and never woke up. That dealer is serving nine years in prison, but Capilouto says it's not enough, and many don't even get that. So he proposed a law in her name, Alexandra's Law. If someone is convicted of providing drugs that lead to someone's death, the court would be required to give them a warning that if they continue and someone else dies from the drugs they provide, they could be charged with murder. 
And in making his case, Capilouto says in your story, quote, I would rather fill our jails than our morgues. So we heard about how Alexandra's law might change prosecuting, but how does prosecuting work today when it comes to overdose deaths and dealers? So prosecutors can already charge overdose deaths as homicides. And we do see that, but it's fairly rare. Because for homicide, you have to prove that they have full knowledge and intent. And a lot of times, people don't know what's in their drugs, even the people who are providing them. Capilouto says this warning would take care of that knowledge and intent component because it's on record in a court of law that they were told. The latest package of this proposal also adds this mandatory minimum 10 to 12 year sentence for anyone who provides drugs that result in someone's death. So it's raising the baseline penalties and also making it easier to prosecute as homicide. And we know that Capilouto first started this effort trying to work with state legislators, but that law, that proposed law, I should say, never made it out of the, of the state Senate Safety Committee. Uh, do we know why it was held up? I watched some of the committee hearings, and it seemed like the main pushback was hesitation that this is a slippery slope that would worsen mass incarceration without actually leading to a solution. And some legislators seemed concerned that it would really start blurring the lines around that knowledge and intent component of homicide. It's worth also noting they estimated it would increase state justice system costs by tens of millions of dollars every year, mainly because more people would be incarcerated. And for this story, Katie, you spoke with Jeanette Zenapentine, and she's the director of California's Drug Policy Alliance. They raised some concerns with these proposed changes. What exactly is she arguing there? Her concerns were very similar to the legislators, that it doesn't meet the legal standards of for homicide, of intent and knowledge. She's approaching it both as a lawyer herself and as someone working to end the war on drugs. You also spoke with one harm reduction consultant, and they made the case that tougher penalties for drug dealers do not actually lead to a reduction in overdoses. And you also cite data that corroborates that. Is that because there's still other ways to like distribute or maybe get illegal drugs? Or, or why is that? Mm. And not just not lead to a reduction, overdoses actually increase. So when police do drug busts and arrest neighborhood dealers, there's this bullseye pattern of higher increases in overdoses the closer you get to where the dealer was located. And that's because new dealers come in to fill the demand, but people are less familiar with what they're selling. So Often their bodies have built up tolerance to what their regular dealer was selling, and they might buy a pill under the same name from a new dealer that actually contains a very different mixture or amount of drugs, and they overdose. I spoke with a national harm reduction consultant, Jess Cochran. She's visiting San Diego from Indiana right now. And in Indiana, they implemented much harsher penalties for these overdose deaths five years ago. And she talked about how that's played out and who she's seen getting prosecuted. Here's Jess. Oftentimes, they're the folks that are closest to the recently deceased because they're people who are at the same party or this is your family, or these are your friends, right? Or this is somebody that you went to school with. And so you're in this situation where like, the information that anybody could have had to make that a safer situation is not available. And in some cases, it's actively denied. And you're grieving a loss, which was totally preventable, right? And then you're charged with homicide. 
Also for this story, you spent some time with San Diego's Harm Reduction Coalition. They're a nonprofit that gets some funding from the county, and they basically hand out supplies from pipes to Narcan or even hand sanitizer. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that they do, this concept of harm reduction? Right. So they're focused not on ending drug use, but on making it safer. So they drive out to folks on the street and distribute supplies, including things like fentanyl test strips that are proven to save lives. And they also machine test people's drugs anonymously so they can know what they're actually taking. They also advocate for safe consumption sites. So in the same way that you can go to a bar and use alcohol in a place where the supply is regulated and someone can keep an eye on you and take your keys if you're too drunk to drive, they want similar spaces for hard drugs. The founder of the Harm Reduction Coalition told me that overdose deaths have held steady locally over the past year, but that's only because of how many overdoses their team has been reversing every week. Okay, so we know that this father that he's been trying to work with the state legislature to get something done now is doing this initiative effort. What's next there or like what needs to happen for it to make the ballot maybe next year? I don't know if they're shooting for later. He just has to get enough signatures. He is aiming for the ballot next year. So Californians might see this initiative on a clipboard when they walk out of Vons, for example. And he's pretty confident that they'll get those signatures. He says public support is strong and he hinted that he had some funding coming in. So Californians may very well see this on their 2024 ballot. And there was one quote in there that sort of stood out to me, and it was that the leader of San Diego's Harm Reduction Coalition, she says that her and Capilouto, they have the same goal, but that she doesn't think that more people, putting more people in prison is a solution there. What is that shared goal? Saving lives. Um, Overdose deaths are now the leading cause of death for people 18 to 45 in the U.S., as you mentioned, 111,000 a year. And we know that there could be an effort here on the federal level that involves actually like a local congressman. Uh, what can you tell us there? Congressman Daryl Issa plans to introduce a federal version of Alexandra's law at a press conference Friday morning. So we could be seeing this debated on the national level very soon. Well, I've been speaking with Katie Heisen, KPBS's racial justice and social equity reporter. And Katie, great to have you here on Roundtable. Thanks for having me. It's Roundup Time. KPBS Roundtable producer Andrew Bracken is here with a list of some other stories that he's been following in and around San Diego. Andrew, welcome back. Hey there, Matt. Great to have you here. Okay, what's on your list this week? To start with, KPBS's Corey Suzuki published another story. It's been an ongoing story involving Chula Vista Council member Andrea Cardenas. She's facing criminal charges in regards to a federal pandemic emergency loan that she and her brother took out of $175,000. The latest development here is that the council member is still in office, but will not stay in her Sandag seat. We know Sandag, the San Diego Association of Governments, that's like the transportation planning agency. And I think when I saw Corey's story, it was the first time that she had been back at a meeting since getting those charges in terms of, you know, maybe misspending some of that pandemic money. And uh, she said that she understood their decision to to take her off Sandag. And yeah, in that same meeting, 
she was not assigned to any other committee seats. And I think, yeah, that's the first sort of public reaction to these charges. She's still in office. She has not resigned. But we'll see where the story goes next. Right. Obviously, these are allegations at this point and a legal process has to play out. But it does seem like a lot of people in Chula Vista are upset with these allegations. And uh, But first time back at a council meeting. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's just, you know, it's really the first public response from her colleagues to these charges. She's still in office. These are just allegations at this point, but these are serious charges, and we'll see where it goes from here. Next, there's a story from iNews sources Andrea Figueroa Briseño about the shortage of dual-language teachers in California, but specifically a lot of the reporting is about uh, San Diego Unified. California has a pretty ambitious goal to see half of its students be bilingual by the year 2030. And her reporting here just kind of opens up some of the questions of of how that's going to be possible without more investment, without raising the pay to add more incentives to get more of these dual language teachers that are so needed in San Diego Unified. Well, I think I was reading her story and there is like an incentive right now, but it's just like a stipend, right? It's like a few thousand dollars. I think the teacher she talked to was hoping that there could be more investments like in that later to attract more, you know, dual language teachers uh, to this. But and I think I can't remember what it was exactly, but the number of kids who are currently graduated that are like certified as bilingual, it was pretty low. It was nowhere near 50 percent. No, and in San Diego Unified, it's it, last year it was six percent. So that's a long way to go to get to you know fifty percent, which is this initiative. It's called the Global California Twenty Thirty Initiative. It's an interesting story. I always think bilingual education is so meaningful, especially here along the border in San Diego. And this opened my eyes to this issue of not having enough you know teachers to teach these these dual language programs in the county and, and again, across California. In a related story, this is at a national level, but it definitely has San Diego ties. The New York Times did a uh, report on the impacts of the shortage of air traffic controllers. You know, that's across the country. There's been like a 9% drop in the number of air traffic controllers over the past 10 years or so, I think from 2011. And And it basically profiles a lot of air traffic controllers, both current and past, um, expressing just like being totally burnt out, being overworked, overtired, but also like making mistakes and really like potentially very dangerous mistakes. It documented one near miss in August at San Diego's Lindbergh Field involving a Cessna that, that came within 50 feet from hitting a Southwest jet. And that was just one of at least seven in San Diego over the past couple of years in that reporting from the New York Times. So it's just a very important job is managing all these planes. We're seeing an increase in air travel, but a decrease in the number of air traffic controllers and obviously their quality of life. Some of the reporting talks about their negative health impacts, mental health problems, substance abuse interesting reporting there. We'll talk about a stressful job like, you know, you kind of alluded to it, but one small mistake could literally cost, you know, hundreds of people their lives. All right, what else you got? This is a story, I think people in San Diego, especially in Hillcrest, there's this building that's been long shuttered, uh, the Pernicanos in Hillcrest. It's like in the heart of Hillcrest. It's this building, used to be an Italian restaurant years and years and years ago and was long dormant. 
Well, it's finally been redeveloped, and there's a new apartment building opening there. And we know Hillcrest, it's an area like all of San Diego that is in dire need of housing. This is a a luxury apartment building called the Denizen. And NBC7 San Diego has a preview of it. It says they're going to have more than 60 units. Studios are going to go for like over $2,700, it said, and I think like up to two bedrooms um, in the $4,500 range. So not, no, not affordable housing. There is more housing, but, you know, is it for, you know, everyone that needs it in, in Hillcrest? Probably not. Yeah, and that's the old uh, Pernicanos, Pernicanos. I don't know if I'm saying that right. The uh, restaurant in Hillcrest. I was reading a Channel 8 story that said it got sold for like $9 million back in 2019 uh, to develop this, uh, I guess, luxury apartment building. Like, as you said, we know we've heard people say we need more housing, um, but 2700 bucks for a studio per month, that's a lot. What else you got? San Diego Union Tribune's Jennifer Van Grove published a piece about how this company, Top Golf, they just signed a potential 40-year lease at East Harbor Island overlooking the bay. The Port of San Diego commissioners voted earlier this week unanimously for this deal. It's now it's it's non-binding at this point, but it's an agreement for, you know, decades to build this top golf. It's like a multi-entertainment suite. I don't know if anybody's heard of those. It's like a driving range, right? Yeah, and with but food, very high tech and, and yeah. right, and, and a lot shoot of it different in things. Holes and cuz Callaway up in Carlsbad, they're now the majority owner of Top Golf. But it, since that announcement's come out, a lot of people have covered it. A lot of buzz on social media, right? Have you been seeing some of that too? Just people reacting? Yeah. I mean, in Van Grove's piece, she talks about some of the objections to it. I think always when there's even bayfront, waterfront property developed so large, I think her piece, you know, refers, somebody refers to it as a monstrosity. <laughs> um, but there are concerns that, you know, it'll block bay views. Again, it's not finalized at this point. I think there's some environmental impact reports that need to be done. Some other reviews and public comment needs to come in. But it was, like I said, it was a unanimous vote. I think it was bring some $4 million in that agreement mm. if it you know comes to pass. Well, we know top golfs are very large. Andrew Bracken, thanks for being here on The Roundup. Thank you, Matt. That's going to round out Roundtable for this week. We appreciate you being here with us. If you have any questions or comments about things you heard today, leave us a voicemail, 619-452-0228. Also, if you missed any part of our show, go ahead and check out the KPBS Roundtable podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Roundtable is produced by Andrew Bracken. Rebecca Chacon and Ben Redlosk are our technical producers. And I'm your host, Matt Hoffman. Thanks so much for being here with us. Have a great weekend, San Diego.